begin this new uh, autumn season, we start afresh in the book of Romans. And Romans is actually one of my favorite books, and I, I think it's been said by many people that it is kind of the gospel and theology itself in a nutshell. And we see a, a lot of what we need to know in that book. And uh, theologians over the years have had many comments about Romans as well. Um, one, one theologian, some of you may know, is a guy named John Calvin, and he had this to say about the book of Romans. When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole of scripture. And uh, another man who I frankly don't know, but his name was Frederick Godet, a Swiss theologian of the 19th century said this about the book of Romans, it is the cathedral of the Christian faith. So as we begin to explore this rich book of the Bible, today we're going to do a, an overview and just uh, focus on some of these high points um, and selected verses from throughout the book. So I will we'll, uh, read these selections. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern 
what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes today so that we may understand the scriptures for what they truly say and not as they might be colored by our personal or cultural or political biases. To that end, give Pastor Andrew your spirit and clarity of thought and expression as he preaches your word to us. And may we have ears to hear and the commitment to listen and to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know we're getting close to the end of the summer, but I want to take you to the lake. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen on a lake. Uh, depending on where you are, you can, uh, sometimes you see parasailers up over the lake. Oftentimes you see people water skiing or on personal watercraft skimming along the top of the lake. And every now and then, depending on where you are, you'll see the buoy indicating that there are divers uh, below the surface of the lake. In many respects, this is uh, a picture of how we approach Scripture. Sometimes we are in a parasailing view where we're looking at the whole of a book or the whole of a Bible. Uh, other times we are skimming along the surface, kind of reading as we go, and, and then other times we're underneath the surface, kind of doing a real deep dive. Ordinarily, preaching here at Christ Church is that on-the-lake view. Uh, there was some deep dive done, we're skimming along, we're, we're kind of going through uh, day by day, passage by passage. Today we're parasailing, so may that encourage you. Uh, we are parasailing, taking a, a big picture view of the book of Romans. Why Romans? Well, we've just come off of a summer where we've seen that uh, the Israelites out of Exodus were set free from slavery. They've been invited into this relationship with Yahweh, who is their Lord and Maker. Um, and then they, have now, they are now journeying with Yahweh and with themselves as this newly formed nation. Talked about it in terms of believing and belonging. In many respects, uh, the, the book of Romans is that same story. In fact, We've noted that the Exodus is such a, a paradigm for all of the scriptures and for the New Testament. There are many allusions to the Exodus uh, in the book of Romans, particularly in the first five chapters of the book of Romans, where we see issues of slavery and being set free. And uh, so we're going to pick it up, actually, in chapter 6, and we're going to skim along chapters 6 to 8 over this fall. Uh, each week, just coming back, taking a chunk of it and seeking to understand it. But really, in order to do this, I want to parasail today and give us the bigger picture of the book of Romans and where chapters 6 to 8 fit into that bigger picture. And as Bob mentioned, I mean, Romans has got such a rich history among theologians, personally, all of that. 
Uh, but I want you to understand, too, that though it is sort of this compendium of, uh, of theology, as Philip Melanchthon said, uh, it is much more than that. It is a book where its theology matches the real questions of our lives. Uh, it, it comes into the warp and woof, the day-to-day -day of, of who we are. Let me share with you a little bit uh, from Amanda Peet, who is an American actress. She was on the Stephen Colbert show uh, late night uh, a couple of years ago. She was starring at the time in an HBO show called Togetherness, which was about a couple of couples that were sort of living together and going through midlife crises. Uh, Colbert says to her, uh, you've got a lovely life right now. What do you really know about midlife crises? Isn't acting this a stretch for you? And she responds, no, I'm 44. That's quite something. Well, you don't look like you're in a personal crisis. What's your crisis? She responds, I fear death. Okay, well, let's keep it light. This is, uh, we all die. It's a late night talk show. Keep it light, keep it light. Uh, maybe you'll go to heaven. You'll, you'll die and go to heaven, he says to her. Well, okay, that's where I need help. You're, you're Catholic, right? She says, I'm Jewish. Uh, so he responds, well, what do you believe? I, I need to know what to believe in. Like, what happens when you die? He's very uncomfortable with this conversation right now. Yes, I, 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 I don't want to be just a bag of dust. I, I don't really know. I don't know what happens. I, I kind of believe, he says, I, I kind of want the pearly gates and all of that. That's not very inspirational, was her reply. It was an awkward moment. Uh, he was not expecting that. I don't think they had rehearsed that in the green room. Uh, but it was a real moment. It was a real moment where real heart fears and real heart anxieties were expressed, and the answers that were coming back were not very strong. The answers were coming, that were coming back were not inspirational. They were not comforting. And, and this is where the Scriptures lead us. The Scriptures lead us into a place where we have these questions. We have questions about death. We have questions about the brokenness of this world. We have questions about injustice. We have questions about all sorts of things. And the Scriptures give us those questions, give us answers to those questions. And it was the same thing when Paul wrote Romans. When, when Paul wrote Romans, we understand that the, the Roman Empire was in full force. You've heard in your history books, we talked about the, the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. Well, you have to understand that the peace of Rome came after subjugation. Uh, the pre peace of Rome, as one put it, person puts it, uh, came bringing crosses, crippling taxes, agricultural exploitation, economic destruction, war, violence, wherever it went. That was the, the peace of Rome. And in that sense, we, we live in a very similar age. We, we live in an age where we look out and we can see all of those things 
whether here in America or around the world, we see persecution, we see economic, ecological, we see all sorts of things that make us ask questions. And to answer those questions, Paul wrote the book of Romans. And, and, and I want us to understand that what he's doing here is he's proclaiming a truth that flies in the face of the answers that the empire, the world, was trying to provide. And you know what Paul calls it? He calls it the gospel. How many of you have heard that word before? <laughs> yeah, we, everybody, you know, we, we use it a lot. We throw it on all sorts of things. Uh, yeah, I think I've got it in the outline today. Uh, we use it as an adjective. We use it as a noun. Maybe we could even gospel somebody. We'll use it as a verb. Um, but what does it mean? Well, it had a meaning in those days. Uh, when Caesar would go out and he, when he would subjugate a nation, uh, they would come back and they would proclaim the gospel of Caesar. They would proclaim the good news of Roman victory. They would proclaim the good news of the extension of the kingdom. When a new Caesar or a new ruler would come into place, either by murdering the old one or succession based on uh, birth, all of these things, they would proclaim the gospel of that ruler. But Paul, five times in chapter 1, wants to come to us and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Lord. And, and what he's doing, again quoting here, he is bringing a deep, transforming, personal, creation-restoring salvation that turns the empire on its head. In proclaiming Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, as Lord, he is flying in the face of an imperial ideology. In that day and age, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus is seditious language because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And I ask you, is it any different today? If you are gospel people hanging on to that gospel I would posit that you are seditious Americans, you're seditious Canadians, you're seditious South Africans, or whatever nationality you want to claim yourself. You are seditious because you no longer belong to a kingdom of this world. You belong to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to walk us through... Sometimes, you know, when people talk about the theology of Romans, they talk about the Romans road. How many of you have heard uh, the Romans road? So some of you have seen that as you walk through sort of the argument of Romans. And by argument, I don't mean, you know, uh, contention but, uh, or contentiousness, uh, just laying out a, of, a, of a case it's been said that there are certain law schools that will look at Romans as an example of just the, the clarity of, of laying out a case. And, and Paul is making a case for this gospel that is contra the, the gospel of the empire, this, this uh, overwhelming, subjugating gospel of the empire. He wants to proclaim a freeing, life-transforming, creation-restoring gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
Two things for you just simply today. It's a gospel for the helpless. Or if you like hopeless, I kind of like that word a little bit better, but the bulletin was already printed so I didn't have a chance to uh, go back and, and shift it. Uh, but there is a tremendous giving over by God to his creation, to their desires. You saw that in the verses 20 to 23. God reveals himself, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. We can look out, we can see that there is a God. We can look in, find the irreducible complexity in human cells, and we can say, there is a God, there's a creator somewhere. And God says it's been clearly perceived so that people are without excuse. But there is a hardness because people recognize that there is a God, but they don't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. I find that so interesting. Uh, you know, we teach our kids to say thank you. And sometimes it's just sort of a throwaway. But when Paul is talking about it here, he's saying this is at the heart of our rebellion. We, we refuse to give thanks to God. They become foolish in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened, claiming to be, be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. Earlier, he says, they suppress the truth. And, and this is, Paul is positing, the state of all. Uh, there is no one who escapes this. In chapter 2, he deals with the religious. He deals with those who are born into, as it were, the covenant community. He talks to the Jews. You know, we could easily put ourselves in that, particularly as we see these baptisms and we realize the opportunities that we have. Uh, those who are sort of born into religious faith and the opportunities there, uh, who have the law, who have the Word of God. What Paul concludes in chapter 3, verse 23, is that the state, the state of humanity is that they have suppressed the truth of God, worshipped and served, created things rather than the Creator, and therefore all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. I don't know to what degree you've dealt with that uh, in your own heart, your own life. It's easy to see when we look out there, right? It's easy to see how other people have fallen short, how systems and organizations and groups and all of that. Sometimes it's a little harder to see when we look inside. I, I wrote a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago about some of our summer reading. Uh, summer reading, Lisa and I read Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. Uh, and in this little novella, uh, Marlowe takes a trip down the Congo River at the turn of the uh, 20th century, so right around 1900. It was an age of imperialism, and uh, Belgium at the time was uh, imperializing the, the Congo. 
And as they were going, they were particularly looking for this guy named Kurtz. And, and Kurtz had gone to the Congo as a real Renaissance man. He had gone with the intentions of uh, converting the, the Congolese, the, the, the primitive or the, uh, what he thought of as primitive folks, the natives of that area. Uh, he had drawn beautiful pictures of you know, the life that they would have afterwards. But the reality is uh, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, over the course of his stay in Africa, Kurtz becomes corrupted. He takes the pamphlet that he had prepared in order to convert and to lead these uh, natives into a higher level of relationship with God and, and civilization, uh, and, and he scribbles all over it, exterminate the brutes. He himself began to induce the natives to worship him, setting up rituals and venerations worthy of a tyrant. You know, as a picture of his soul, he becomes ill with a jungle fever and eventually dies on the boat that Marlowe came to rescue him. And at the very end, it's almost like he peers into his life and he realizes everything that has happened and he says, the horror the horror. T.S. Eliot picked up on this in his poem, The Hollow Men, and he said, Mr. Kurtz is dead. And, and that's the reality of the condition that all of us share apart from any grace of the Lord. We, we can be filled with the most grandiose ideas, but we find ourselves to be hollowed out on the inside. Mr. Kurtz is dead. He's dead. We reject God by nature. We need help. And it says, uh, you know, therefore God gave them up. This is 124, in the lusts of their hearts. For this reason, 126, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 29 um, uh, sorry, verse uh, 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. When we are apart from God, we are truly hopeless. We, we cannot save ourselves, nor can we do any good to, to creation. But here's where the good news comes. And, and this is what Paul is proclaiming as the gospel for the hopeless is that God, chapter 5, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, while we were still lost in that abysmal horror that marks us all apart from the transforming grace of Christ, apart from the gospel, while we are still in that horror, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. So, the second thing is a gospel of health or healing, a gospel of hope has a couple of parts to it. There's the redemptive rescue. God sent his son. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't ever miss, don't ever miss the importance of the fact that you did nothing to deserve or earn this. This is such one of the most important verses of the whole Bible. If we, if we hold this verse in sort of clarity of thought and mind, it will keep us from pride. 
You know, while we were still sinners, we weren't earning it, we weren't deserving it, there was no merit on our own. While we were still in our sin, rebelling against God, He saved us. So it helps us to see truth about ourselves, but it also helps us to see the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he comes while we're still shaking our fists at Him, while we are still hollowed out on the inside in order to give us grace. One of the greatest turns of phrases, chapter 8, verse 32, uh, it's not printed for you in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can look at it. I, I emphasize for you in, in chapter 1, God gave them over. God gave them up. God gave them over. Over and over again, God says that. But then look at chapter 8, verse 32. In terms of this rescue, what shall we say for these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the gospel just crystallized to its purest form. While we were given over to sin, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up in order that we might know the righteousness of God. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful gospel for Martin Luther, who, uh, you know, as he was going through and he loved the word of God, but he kept, trembling, he kept tripping over this idea of the righteousness of God. For him, the righteousness of God was a burden because he knew that he could not measure up to the righteousness of God. But then one day, the Holy Spirit came to him, and he showed him the reality that the righteousness of God is a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. And it's centered on this giving over in which Jesus comes and rescues those who are otherwise hopelessly and helplessly lost. Now, again, I don't know where you are on your journey, but, but my prayer and, and our prayer is that we see ourselves really in, in terms of Egypt. What we studied this summer, we see ourselves in terms of slaves that have been set free, slaves who had no power to execute our own deliverance, slaves who needed the, the wonderful intervention of Yahweh to come and defeat the power of the Egyptians, we are slaves set free because Christ has come and done what we could not do. And he has defeated the forces of the world, the empire of our own hearts that have enslaved us, tyrannized us, subjugated us, and he has set us free. He has set us free in his son. And there's two aspects to that freedom. So if you're taking notes underneath the, the gospel of health, we have this redemptive rescue while we were yet sinners, Christ giving himself over for us. Two aspects to the freedom. The first is this, a, a personal freedom from guilt and shame. I don't know how many times in my life I have come back to Romans 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Satan is, Revelation 12, the accuser of the brothers. And he has had his way in my own heart. He constantly comes to accuse. You didn't do this. You failed at that. You are, could not possibly be worthy of the love of a pure father. But the words of Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation because it's not me. I was still in my sin. When Christ came to rescue me, he gave himself over. And, and now the righteousness of God has appeared. A righteousness from beginning to end. A righteousness that is mine, not because I have earned it, but because God has graciously given it to me. And so I can stand and say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I am free. I believe I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to his people. But there's a second aspect to the freedom, and that freedom is we are free to be the people that God has called us to be. Romans 12, uh, in terms of outline of the book, uh, 1 to 3 establishes that all have sinned. Uh, four and five lead us to the righteousness that is ours in Christ. Uh, six to eight, life by the Spirit. I'll come back to that in a minute. Nine, and, nine ten, and eleven, excursus on the Jews. Uh, Twelve to sixteen is the, the application. So all of this theology gets leveraged into our lives. And, and that's what, that's what the, the freedom is, is that we are now free to live transforms lives in view of God's mercies. Do not uh, submit yourselves. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, and that you might walk in that way. We can be people that bring glory to God in our personal lives. We can bring, be people that bring glory to God in, in our church life, not because we are perfect, but because God is at work in us, and, and we can testify to the gospel, and that's what he's called us to. You know, when we talk about believe and belong, we talk about how God has transformed us and the invitation, the opportunity that we have to share that with everybody. As we think about extending our community, whether it be the community that is here or extension out into the community, we, we think about it in terms of what God has prepared us to do. He has prepared us to live the life that He's called us to live. We, we always want to live like caterpillars. But He says, you're butterflies. Go, fly, be free. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In very real sense, this is the journey of Romans. But there's a question. And I don't know if you feel it, I feel it. And this is, brings us back to our series for the fall. As the Israelites are at Sinai, they recognize that they have a big task in front of them. They are, to, they are God's treasured possession. How do we live as God's treasured possession? And God is going to give them the law uh, that will then teach them how to live safely before a holy God, to live out face of the nations, what it means to be a treasured possession. 
So here we are, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who put your faith and trust in Him, we have the same question. You know, what does it look like to live as Christ's treasured possession? Many respects, chapter 12 to 16, we get some very concrete examples of that. But my question is always, where is the power going to come from? Like, how can I do this? Because I know that I don't have it in and of myself. And that's what chapters 6 to 8 are about. They're about life by the Holy Spirit. Uh, life with the power, the same power, Romans 8 verse 11, that raised Jesus from the dead still works and is active in you and me. And so that's where we're going to water ski the rest of the fall. We are going to find out, you know, how do we tap in to that power? How do we experience the power to be the people that God has called us to be? It is good news, good news. One writer puts it this way, the power of the gospel, 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 five times. Paul names the gospel in chapter 1. It's a gospel that proclaims Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and Lord of all. Not because he previously, or he succeeded the previous emperor. Not because he has a Roman imperial lineage. Not because he successfully deposed or murdered his predecessor. But because he rose from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God, which was a title that the emperor would take for himself, not because his father is now among the gods, but because he has blown open the grave. He has broken an imperial seal that would have kept him there and has been established as the Son of God through the resurrection. Amanda Pete, you fear death. We all feel the brokenness of this world, but there is good news. Jesus Christ has broken the imperial seal, and he is our Lord through resurrection. Father, as we come this morning, as we come to this book, we pray that the power of the seditious gospel would course through our veins that it would make weak our knees, that we would find ourselves before you, tears of repentance and joy commingled, because we understand more clearly who we are, but beyond that, we understand most clearly who you are. Thank you that you did not wait for us to clean ourselves up. Thank you that you came while we were still sinners. Thank you that you gave yourself over to death in order that we might be brought into the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do pray that you would send us out uh, with this hope, that you would send us out with this confidence, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, lives that are, lives that are transformed, through the blood of Christ. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.